You're listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. On this podcast, we feature a curated selection of content from the pages of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. At New Ideal, we explore pressing cultural issues from the perspective of Rand's philosophy, objectivism, which upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. Find us on the web at newideal.aynrand.org. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome again to New Ideal Live. This is the video and podcast series of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. Uh, on this program, we discuss complex issues and events shaping our world today from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism, which is a philosophy that upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. You can Learn more about our publication by going to newideal.einrand.org. And if you're watching us on social media today, whether on Facebook, YouTube, or Periscope, uh, that's something you can always do. But please also be aware that one way to interact with us even more directly during a live broadcast is to join us on Zoom. And you can do that by going to zoom.us slash join and plugging in the meeting ID that I have at the top of the screen, which is 812-506-718. My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow and instructor at the Ayn Rand Institute. Momentarily, I'm going to be joined by our guest today, Dr. Gina Gorlin. Uh, we are going to be talking about the topic, in a time of crisis, is self-esteem a non-essential luxury? Uh, Gina Gorlin, is the author of an article that I happened upon recently on, uh, on her website called COVID-19 and the Meaning of Life. And just to give you a quick background about Gina, Gina is, uh, Dr. Gorlin's a professor in the Verkauf Graduate School of Psychology at Yeshiva University. She also has a private psychotherapy and coaching practice in New York City and online. Her research and clinical focus on inspiring and empowering self-improvement in the face of resistance, uh, it, uh, it focuses on that, whether it be internal resistance due to anxiety or depression or external resistance due to, uh, for example, illness or contrary social norms. You can uh, find out more about her research and about her clinical practice by going to her personal website, which is ginagorlin.com. But uh, let's now bring Gina on screen, Gina, are you are you out there? I hopefully am sitting right here, and yeah. great to be here. Coming through live, and, live and clear. Good to see you. Good to so, see you. So, Gina, I, I, I as I mentioned, I happened upon this article. Uh, it's you've now put it up on Medium. Uh, the full title is COVID nineteen and the meaning of life, and then you have a very provocative subtitle that you've added on Medium, which is "To Hell with Maslow's Hierarchy: Self Actualized." <laughs> Now, so uh, what do you have to say about the meaning of life? What does this relate to something called Maslow's hierarchy? Uh, what's the article about and, and what can you tell us? Sure. Yes, yeah, so I hoped that that would grab enough people's attention because what inspired this particular article was just noticing on social media how many versions of Maslow's famous pyramid, his hierarchy of needs, have gone viral in various forms. So you know, I have pictures of a few of them in the article, but there are many more that are making the rounds on Twitter and on Facebook, you know, with toilet paper being the new basic need, you know, with um, just the general idea that, look, this is not the time for us to be worrying about our hopes and dreams and trying to aspire to lofty 
ideals, this is the time to just like be making sure that we have food on the table and that like we're sane and that, you know, we're getting enough sleep. And, and I find something about that message profoundly uninspiring at a time when I think we desperately need inspiration and spiritual fuel to power our way through the various privations that this pandemic has imposed on us, whether that's being out of a job and worrying about where our next meal will come from, or whether that's, you know, being unsure if we're ever going to get to play our instrument in public again, you know, or, you know, especially for the, a lot of my performing arts friends who suddenly, they don't know how or whether or when they're ever going to get to perform in front of an audience. And it's not just that they're out of work, you know, it's that the dream that they've been working toward, that they've been willing to starve for throughout much of their life has been torn away from them. And I think this idea that, well, look, either you've got this luxury of focusing on your ideals because everything is fine at the lower ends of the hierarchy, right? Or you have to like make sure you have food on the table and put aside principles, ideals, you know, self-actualization concerns. I think that's such a false dichotomy because no, there's no time when we need a spiritual purpose and, and a sense of self and of the, the worthiness of our own cause than when we're starving and when we need to figure out how we're going to survive. So, so the article is about that dichotomy and about kind of reconceptualizing our needs in light of what I think is a very radically different view where our spiritual needs, including self-esteem, you know, crucially, and our physical needs, they're integrated. You can't tear them apart. So why do you think it is that people believe that uh, what you're calling spiritual needs, a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, a sense of self-esteem, why do you think they disparage them? Why do you think they regard them as uh, something like just a luxury? And, and, and how have you, what are examples where you've seen them doing this? How does this yeah. connect for the Maslow idea, for instance? Yeah, sure. So I think the Maslow idea captures a cultural intuition, an intuition that exists in our culture, that these levels of need are separate from each other and that ideals, principles, higher purpose, sense of self, that these are in a way like that they almost exist in a separate plane, that they are warm, fuzzy, subjective states of mind that are nice to have if you can get them, but they're kind of neither here nor there as far as our survival is concerned. And, and I see that everywhere and you know take a lot of different forms certainly in my clinical practice where people are either feeling torn between well okay i have to put you know i have to find a job that pays money but i feel like that's it, the the entry level jobs out there are so beneath me because i feel like i have all this higher intellectual potential that i would be wasting by putting food on the table and being productive versus being able to see the nobility in putting food on the table and being productive you know or versus understanding that it, you know, in order to make one's intellectual activity sustainable, that you've got to find a way to offer it as a value to other people and to either be able to monetize it or find a way to sustain yourself, you know, by other means so that you can fund your intellectual or creative endeavors and that these things really go hand in hand. Okay, so one of the examples that you gave in your article was uh, kind of a hypothetical scenario of someone, let's say, who uh, loses their job 
because mm -hmm. of uh, this economic crash that we're dealing with. And as you were just indicating, they, they need to find a source of income. And so they take, let's say, a job that is not what they originally trained for uh, right. just to put food on the table. They like, take a, a job as a, a grocery clerk. And you described some of the thinking processes that you um, suspect someone like that might be going through. And, and you suggested uh, alternate uh, course of action for them to a different way of thinking about it that relates to this issue. Could, could you say a little more about that example? Yeah. So I think... A, lots of people are in circumstances like that right now, but, but it's a wider problem that I've seen a lot of people grapple with that what they need to do now in order to get by, in order to get to the next step, isn't, like you said, what they trained for or where they see their kind of lofty long-term passion you know, taking them. And I think a common mindset that gets people stuck and that right now is really going to make or break people's ability to cope you know, with this crisis is that these are really two separate tracks, you know, that on the one side, you've got the practical needs of survival. You've got, you know, needing to eat, needing to have a you know, roof over your head, needing to be able to just see to your material needs, right? And then on the other side, you've got self-actualizing, you've got being creative, being able to take pride in your work, being able to, you know, really feel deeply invested and find meaning. And I think that's, really backwards when we consider where our physical survival needs have traditionally, how they've traditionally been met and through what kind of creative effort and energy. And then if we think about putting all that creative effort and energy and putting all that kind of pride in ourselves, that kind of genuine striving to be better and to grow toward the task of making sure we can put food on the table, you know, toward the task of, okay, I'm going to imbue this delivery job or this grocery store, you know, clerking job with all the purpose and meaning that makes it worth doing for me. And that makes it a part of my life that I am doing something that requires courage, that requires you know, really thinking outside the box, all that calls upon those same capacities in me that make me capable of, dreaming up possibilities you know, that don't currently exist and, and that kind of make me yearn for a higher ideal. So, so I think those are the two alternative ways of thinking about it. It strikes me that there's, there's really two things that you're saying here about the uh, a person in the situation. On the one hand, you're saying, uh, look, the, even if this is not the job that you wanted, uh, the reason that you're doing it is for the, the very important reason of uh, physical survival, which is, is uh, central to anything else that you want to do in life. And so there's a nobility and there's even a spiritual meaning that comes in doing that. Yeah. You're saying that, but then you're also saying, I think, if, you're, if part of you, if part of the reason why you are reluctant to take a job like this is because there, it's not what you wanted to do with your life, there was something else that, that you were more passionate about that you're also saying, that that's not something you should feel guilty about. That that, right. that the, the point of the first job is to get you to the position of being able to yeah. hopefully someday do something more like the second. And that it's not uh, it's not a luxury to be able to do that kind of job that you want to do, right? No, exactly. And that again, that there's this false dichotomy that I think goes in both directions. That on the one hand, we think look, get over yourself, just go get a job and just do something useful and quit with the lofty ideals, you know, that don't mean anything. And I think that's a really poisonous perspective. 
right? And on the flip side, but I think it's the same mistake. Well, I'm too good for this kind of short-term, menial, unskilled job, whatever it is, because I am meant for nobler, loftier things. That both of these ignore the fact that we are mind and body. You know that we are integrated beings, and that the way that we get from today to 20 years from now, the way that we deal with these kinds of challenges that get thrown at us unpredictably as they do, you know, this being probably the biggest in all of our lives, is by using our creative faculties, by calling upon our innermost you know, principles and ideals and by imbuing whatever task, you know, whatever it is, whether it's that today we have to just focus on, you know, being a good de delivery person, right? And immaculate, doing that job excellently and finding ways perhaps even to innovate within it. Or today we're gonna choose to take a lower paying job for the sake of our long-term goal of becoming, you know, an artist, whatever it may be, that all that is part of our life. And that loving it means kind of loving the whole, you know, including the little gritty bits, if you will. So let's let's say just a little bit more about that last part. Um, there's a few people in the chat saying, uh, well, one person says uh, a SETI. I don't, I'm not sure if I pronounced the name correctly. There's no job too small. There's only people who are too small to take them. I, I take it that's that echoes some of the attitude that you're expressing here. But at the same time, I don't know, somebody could object, well, it's easy for uh, somebody who is still pursuing their passion to give that advice to somebody who's not able to do it in the immediate moment. Indeed. And well, look, some of the, some of these jobs really are dirty jobs. And, uh, and uh, what's it's, it's one thing to say, well, this is a necessary means to what I really want to do, but it's another thing to cope with it in the immediate moment. And it's, I mean, certainly this is something everybody has to do at some point in their life or another. Do you have thoughts or tips uh, and uh, Bradley also asked a question about this. Do you have any tips for people to maintain their identity and self-esteem if they're changing career or industry uh, due to this crisis? Yeah. yeah, so I think one really important step, which you alluded to, Ben, and I'm glad that you know, we're not letting it drop, is to recognize the loss and, and to take it seriously and to be okay with the fact that you're not okay with suddenly having to shift focus after having invested so much of yourself in a career path that means so much to you. You know, I've read gut-wrenching accounts of people who are having to close down their restaurants, people who are not sure, you know, if they're ever going to like be able to open the, their doors again. And I mean, these are people who have, like, this is part of who they are, you know, this, whether it's the restaurant, whether it's a museum, you know, or a creative venture that they've been willing to start. They're, they're, they're happy to go without food or to go without a roof over their heads for the sake of being able to do their art or to be able to get their business off the ground. And now it's all being torn away from them. And I don't think that's being taken seriously enough in this pandemic. And that's a real loss and mourning it and realizing how much it means to you, I think is a crucial step. I don't think skipping over that and getting, you know, buck up and just go deliver groceries. I don't think that's, the right approach. I don't think that's a feasible approach. Just like if you lose a loved one, it's not healthy to just pretend like you don't care, right? And just to go about your life. There's grieving to do. And I think it's the same, the same in this case. That's part of what it means to value yourself and to take your own purpose and your own ideals seriously. And then step two, 
is to expand your focus and kind of really see if you can capture like what are the wider, more, more universal aspects of my character, of my soul that can still be expressed, even if in a very different form, you know, and that were being expressed in the form of you know, my commitment to this restaurant business or, you know, in my performing arts career or whatever the case may be, like, what is, is it, is it my creativity, right? Is it my joie de vivre? Is it the ways in which I collaborate with other people and forge connections with them through, you know, humor or through shared experience or through irony? And what can I do next that will still allow me to express those fundamental values, kind of fundamental aspects of myself, the things that make me me? And, and then take pride in that process, realizing how hard it is, right? And how painful it will be, especially at first, to have to shift course. Again, just like someone who's widowed and like, getting out there again, right? And seeking new love. And to really take seriously the challenge and celebrate the fact that you're doing that, you know? And, and celebrate the fact that you are someone who is willing to take on challenges and is willing to change course and to grow and to face reality. Because fundamentally, you know, that's what makes a human really, um, really lovable and self-lovable. So to uh, go off the first point that you made uh, briefly, part of what you're saying here is uh, you're not just recommending stiff upper lip, uh, stoicism, grin and bear it, that's you're, not my style. <laughs> you're saying, yeah, a part of dealing with a, a dramatic transition in life where you're not getting what you wanted, uh, where maybe your dreams have been shattered, even is is to is to feel that and to acknowledge it and to recognize Absolutely. your vulnerability uh, to yeah. the things that life throws at you. Which can also, absolutely, I think I couldn't have said it better. And I think part of what that does is it leaves you open to other possibilities that might actually allow you to pursue your dream in other forms that otherwise, because you're shutting the door on all reminders, all thoughts, you know, all triggers that might bring back that pain that you don't want to feel, right? By shutting the door on that, you're also shutting the door on all the other cues that might be relevant to, hey, how might I be able to continue performing or continue with my music? Or, you know, is there a way to actually reorient my business for the current environment? And people have been finding all kinds of creative opportunities in this pandemic to do that, to kind of shift course and find a way to offer their services online or, you know, do courses via Zoom in things that nobody would have thought to try to do virtual courses in before. And so just being open to that, I think is part of what it means to kind of be vulnerable and and mourn. So I suspect that there might still be some people in the audience who are listening to this and thinking all this talk of uh, spiritual needs, meaning, purpose, et cetera, is still uh, a little too touchy-feely. Um, but let's 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 zoom in on one of those in particular to really dig into this and understand what you're saying about it. I mean, I think self-esteem is the is the topic that we put in the actual webinar title. And I know it's something you've done a lot of thinking about. Uh, can we can we zoom in on that and say a little bit more about what self-esteem is, what it's not, and why we need it so desperately? Sure. Yeah. So self-esteem, as I understand it, largely inspired by you know, Rand's perspective on it. 
it's a conviction that is internalized, that's deeply internalized into our emotional apparatus, into our psychology, so that it's kind of there day to day. It's not something that just like, you know, comes and goes on a momentary basis, but it's a conviction that A, we're capable of living, of doing the things we need to do, right? That we're competent, that we basically can trust ourselves to survive and to get through life. And B, that we're worthy of doing so. That, that we're good, to put it, you know, coarsely. But that can take many forms depending on the standard that we set for ourselves, right? And, and we can't help but have some evaluation of ourselves. And I think that's a really key insight in Rand's scholarship and it's uh, recapitulated in other um, scholarly works, you know, in psychology, but this idea that as self-reflective beings, we can't help but have a, an opinion of ourselves in effect, just as we can't really help but have some impression, some judgment, you know, of other people as like being good for us or bad for us. And the judgment that we have of ourselves, it's going to follow us around wherever we go. And it's going to determine how motivated we are to advocate for ourselves, to go after our goals, you know, to actually live our own best life, because it takes a lot of effort, a lot of energy, especially in times like these, and how much we're going to trust ourselves, right? Like whether we're going to trust our own judgment or whether we're constantly going to ask for reassurance or just defer to other people because we don't feel like we're qualified, you know, to make decisions and, and to judge. Oh. It sounds to me like part of what you're saying here is that the, part of the reason why self-esteem is so important is even if you're talking about just doing the work necessary to survive, to put food on the table, the person who does that is not a zombie. People have, as you said, just not a body but a mind and feelings, and to engage in the hard work, they need motivation. Indeed. and motivation requires these two things that you were just commenting on a conviction of one's own efficacy and a conviction of one's own worth people who lack either of those uh are, are going to have a really hard time yeah both making decisions and acting on them right and even just waking up in the morning and they're going to put a lot of effort and energy into trying to validate that they're okay and we see that everywhere you know with, to the extent that a person is insecure to the extent that we ourselves have been insecure at various times in our lives or about aspects of our lives, we notice psychologically how it eats at us, how we're constantly trying to like check in with our, like, am I, you know, or compare ourselves to other people, or we're trying to like validate that we made the right decision, right? And we're, we're kind of engaged in self-doubting thoughts all the time to the extent that we don't have that confidence, you know, that we're good and that we're capable. Can you say, uh, you mentioned that this view of Self-esteem is one that you you find in the works of Ayn Rand, and of course, this is a podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. So, I imagine many in our audience would like to know more about the connection there. Uh, can you say a little more about where you see the concept of self-esteem playing a work, playing a role in Ayn Rand's work? And I think, especially since people tend to be more familiar with her fiction, uh, can you say more about how that concept is behind the scenes in a lot of the stories? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So Rand, as we'll maybe be familiar to some uh, who are listening, Rand viewed self-esteem as one of three cardinal, supreme and ruling human needs. I believe she called them both needs and values. So they're cardinal values. At some points, she 
refers to them as needs at other points as values they're clearly both right if we need them we'd better value them right and the the other two are reason and purpose so she lists them in that order reason purpose self-esteem and in atlas shrugged we get the full formulation of self-esteem as being one of these three ruling needs and kind of how it fits in with the rest of the philosophy and you certainly see that dramatized in the novels i mean even just in the form of you know who has a more stable and genuinely positive impression of himself howard dork or ellsworth tui right ellsworth tui who his whole life is just committed to tearing other people down so that he doesn't have to feel inferior, right? Versus Howard Rourke, who doesn't think of Tui because he's busy pursuing his passion and erecting buildings that he's proud to look upon and call his own. And he has the patience and the perseverance to you know, wait it out in a quarry, not knowing if he's ever going to get to build again, because he has that, if he, you know, those who've read it and remember that line that it that pain only goes down to a certain point for him. And what's beneath that, right? It's the conviction, both that, you know, his life is worth living and that he is worth the trouble you know, of whatever it takes. I mean, I think that quarry sequence is so relevant for what we're going through now, you know, in this mm -hmm. pandemic, where it's like, we're all in the quarry together, in a sense, and we've got to be able to call upon those kind of resources that fundamental knowledge that whatever's happening to us moment to moment, that fundamentally we're capable of getting through this and we're worth the trouble, you know, we're worth the effort, we're worth the patience. And you see that with every character in Atlas Shrugged, you know, to the extent that they're, that they value themselves. And, and I think it's an interesting case in Reardon where it's not, so, he knows he's competent, but because of the standards he's absorbed, the moral standards he's absorbed, he doesn't know that he has a right to his own happiness, right? Until later in the book. And so he bends over backwards for his awful family, you know, that just tears him down all the time. And he thinks that it's just his duty to take it and to waste time on these horrible parties where he's just being insulted all the time, right? And meanwhile, go do his work and, you know, derive his, uh, his competence and, you know, his self-efficacy from his work. But meanwhile, to be unhappy and to kind of hate, to think he's a moral blackguard, Right. And Rand, I think it's such an important part of the novel to, to kind of realize that that whole moral code is contrary to the, to our need for self-esteem. I could go on and on. Good. But. And that actually answers a question that Bradley had asked uh, in the in yeah. the Q&A box about what does bad altruistic philosophy do to one's motivation. And Gina, I've been um, I've been running an online discussion group about the Fountainhead and cool. you know, giving me the chance to reread the book in a great amount of depth over the last few months. The quarry scene is something I've been thinking a lot about lately, but uh, even more than that, I, I had for some reason always thought that, that Rand's views of self-esteem were uh, uh, not really something she developed until Atlas Shrugged, but I'm seeing them now all over the place in the Fountainhead and in much more detail than I had previously remembered seeing. So there's not just the issue of Rourke that you mentioned, but uh, in the first half of part four, uh, the, the, which is the final part of the book, there is a scene between Gail Wine and Dominique Franklin, oh, yeah. where Gail says the proof, says the quest for self-respect is proof of its lack. And, yep. and there's so much. When I, I mean, when I yeah, read I, that, I started seeing 
wait, in all the surrounding chapters, there are all these characters who are doing yeah. exactly that. They are they're engaging in various forms of evasion and faking in order to convince themselves that they're good people. That's what and, every villain is doing. And they're not. Right? That's what Keating is doing to, to the degree that he's bad, that this is what, what's making him bad, right? Is yeah. this ineffectual second-handed quest to validate himself, basically. This is what Taggart is doing, James Taggart and Atlas Shrugged. I mean, yeah, no, it's everywhere in the novel. And it's, it, it really also underscores why uh, for Rand, self-esteem is a need, and it's a universal need. It's even a need of bad people. They, nobody oh, yeah. can survive believing that they're a bad person. They have to convince themselves and use some kind of pseudo-self-esteem to make them think that they're good. And it's interesting, too, because it's dramatic irony, because even Gail Wynand is on a quest for self-respect in certain ways, and it is a proof for him that he lacks it, which is part of the tragedy of how he ends up. We could go for a long time talking about that, and I, you know, anybody who wants to see our final Attempting. episode, tune in on yeah. Friday. Um, but maybe now is a good time for me to remind people who are on Zoom that uh, you can be sending questions to us. Uh, the best way to do this is to hover over your screen and uh, use the Q&A button. That'll open up a module where you can plug your questions in. I'm also looking at the chat, but the Q&A box is really the best place to do this. And we'll start to look at questions that have been coming in momentarily. But before uh, I do that, Gina, I also thought it would be a good idea for me to ask you a little bit more about what is the role of the concept of self-esteem in your own clinical work, where, where do you see its value coming up in, I mean, obviously you don't want to talk about particular cases, but if you can generalize and uh, give, give hypotheticals, I think it would be really interesting insight into what uh, practice of a uh, clinical psychologist like yourself looks like with some of these yeah. concepts in mind. Absolutely. I mean, it comes up all the time and I think it's at least part of everything that I work on with people. And I should clarify, I think as a segue to this issue, the wine and quote that you mentioned, you know, those who have self, those who seek self-respect lack it. I think that there's a poetic way in which that's true and a way we can observe, you know, that it's true in terms of the ways that people chase after it without ever actually gaining it. But it's also the case that there, you can be on a legitimate quest, yeah. you know, and a very, you know, rightful and potentially very successful quest for self-respect if you go about it in a reality-oriented way. And if what you mean by that is that you actually want to achieve things worthy of your own you know, respect and, and what's hard about that, and this gets us back to your clinical practice question, is that there's a kind of catch-22, which I've written a lot about and deal with patients you know, very frequently, um, this issue that you know, it's a need, you can't get away from needing to have at least some minimal level of self-regard, of, you know, of feeling like you're worth it and like you're capable. And at the same time, if you don't already have it, there are all kinds of things you need to do to get it, or at least to improve it, right? You need to like earn your own trust. I did a whole talk on that over the summer. You need to, you know, go out and actually find work worth doing and gain a sense of efficacy from that work. And oftentimes the people I'm meeting with, they're lacking at least some piece, you know, at least some aspect of their self-esteem, whether because they adopted a, a an altruistic or a kind of impersonal duty-based standard that they're constantly evaluating themselves against. And that manifests in lots of different ways, but often, for example, in just a fear of asserting oneself. So without obviously giving any identifying information, I've had a couple of clients who have given up on 
aspects of their life that they really value because they thought that their boss or their spouse or, you know, someone in their life would judge them badly because it would have involved some risk of, you know, violating social distancing norms, for example. Mm -hmm. Even though, in fact, you know, in one case, this person is an essential worker. And so, in fact, has every right by, you know, by any current standard to present, to go into work and to leave the house, you know, go into the office, but felt like, you know, well, I'm not important enough. And, you know, my supervisor just is going to think that I'm just being whiny if I ask to go into work because I, in theory, could do the same work at home, even though it's really suboptimal and even though it's driving me insane and like bleeding me dry of my physical and emotional needs, but eh, he'll judge me and and I don't know if I can recover from that. And what, like, what right, who am I to, you know, ask for this privilege, right? Or you know, in a lot of different cases, you know, people who are unhappy in their relationships, in their job, it, it, whatever the case may be, and are just, they feel afraid of confronting that and, and of asking for something better or seeking something better. And they don't feel like they have the right. They don't feel like, like, you know, that kind of who am I feeling? Or they they hear this voice of, you know, kind of guilt and shame bearing down on them. Like, well, if you, you should have thought of that when you thoughtlessly jumped into this marriage or when you thoughtlessly, you know, or when you didn't heed your mother's advice, you know, 20 years ago and told you so, you know, and whatever the kind of demeaning standards that are ringing in their mind, take the place of that, selfish pursuit of values of happiness um and then on the other side there's the efficacy kind of and often these go hand in hand but you know they manifest a little bit differently so patients who just aren't sure they can do it and are really scared to fail and scared that they can't tolerate failure which is really the the bigger fear because all of us risk failing when we do something we haven't done before you know when we send out an application for a job that would be challenging and exciting to us, which also probably means it's somewhat competitive and that there's real, real uncertainty about whether we'll get it, right? Or we venture out into a new field, right? We try to re-specialize given the pandemic, you know, we try to learn a new skill, like coding or something that we can do online and feeling like, no, no, I, I'm gonna have to drop out or you know, I'm gonna be at the bottom of my class or I'm just not gonna be able to make a case for myself. So I'm not even gonna try because I'm gonna fail and if I fail, I can't handle it. It's just too much for me, I'm too weak. And it's that belief that I often find myself challenging for people because in fact, they almost invariably are stronger than they think and they can handle it. And it's often a mismatch of expectations with reality, you know, insofar as, I mean, they're able-bodied, intelligent people who are, who have the wherewithal to find me and come to me for therapy. You know, usually that means that they can tolerate a no, you know, a rejection, et cetera, but they don't think that they can. And that's another way that that manifests. And as a follow-up on that, when you encounter a client who has significant self-esteem uh, deficit, what is the strategy for uh, working on that? I mean, it's not enough to do the kind of Stuart Smalley from the old SNL sketch approach and say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and people like me. You can't yeah. just tell yourself you're good and that you're able. Uh, there, there, there must be something that's uh, more practical, uh, practically oriented than that, that you, that you recommend. What do you recommend? Yeah, I mean, it varies a lot with the particular 
source of the insecurity and you know like we were saying is it more a an issue of false standards that need to be rejected and and a new more kind of pro self standard that needs to be adopted in which case i do a lot of like cognitive restructuring and and self reflective work and just practice monitoring our own internal self talk our own mental dialogue to notice whenever that like altruistic kind of duty driven mom voice is badgering us you know, or whether it's mom whether it's you know just we've internalized it from the culture from wherever but you know that voice of like punishment and derision and and shaming or just kind of motivation by fear as rand called it and catching that and then really shifting into a different kind of tone that is friendly and compassionate and caring for oneself um it, you look like you have a question about that or is there something you wanted to clarify no 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 i was just uh, <laughs> or just resonating reflecting <laughs> but i won't go into Appreciate that, right that. Now. Um, you're welcome to share any personal experience um we all have you know some resonance with um with these problems but so you know in the case where it's a standard issue and where and that's a kind of internalized belief that functions like any other internalized or automatized belief or premise you know which is like a mental habit that needs to be broken and a new habit that needs to be asserted and reinforced and practiced in its place um and so there's lots that go goes into that which i'm happy to speak more about but that's kind of the basic technology is it's like the technology of cognitive change <laughs> um and then on the other side kind of when it's an issue of efficacy primarily again it's rarely just one or the other so usually it's some mix of these things but with respect to kind of self doubts about you know i don't think i could handle it if i failed for example like i was saying before um or any such anxiety about no matter how general or domain specific about like well i just i can't handle talking to strangers or i can't handle interviews it's just too much for me or you know i can't fly you know some people have more specific fears like flying on a plane which now i realize is largely off the table for a lot of us but hopefully not forever right or you know fear or even getting on the subway for some people and every kind of fear kind of along that continuum the mainstay in treatment for those kinds of fears is what we call exposure therapy so you know once we kind of check for the mistaken premises once we identify that you know what logically speaking if you look at the evidence you have to date there's no reason to think that you would like die if you were rejected from an interview and there's also no reason to think that you have no shot there's actually some you know look at your resume you actually have quite a range of experience do you know in advance what they're looking for and that they're absolutely not going to consider someone with your training you know so partly just like reality checking their doubts and even when the doubts are legitimate really being honest with ourselves you know encouraging them to be honest with themselves about like well how are you going to find out like is this a doubt that you would rather just assume you know via defensive pessimism as we sometimes call it you know assume the worst so that you don't risk the pain of finding out or would you rather at least give yourself a shot like and that's where you're calling upon that the worst aspect of self see right that like self valuing self respect self love like are you worth the trouble of at least trying right are you worth the effort and so to kind of really motivate that there are lots of different ways to motivate it and to imbue it with the dignity and the valor that i think it actually involves to have to go and face our fears and you know try in the face of uncertainty and then do it and every time you do it 
you actually gain very reliably, you gain more confidence, you know, more trust in your own ability to cope um, and just more experience. You know, you just get better at it, which then further helps, you know, is further grist for the mill that, oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm pretty capable. You know, I've got this. Yeah, for anybody, anyone who wants a really good uh, exposure therapy for uh, job interview uh, rejection, I highly recommend the academic job market where you can apply yeah. for 400, 500 jobs and get plenty of experience with that. Um, but let me now transition to a question uh, from uh, Mary Aline. Uh, so I had asked you earlier more to say more about what self-esteem is and what it isn't. And Mary Lee asks about what does Maslow mean by self-actualize when he says self-actualization is at the top of his pyramid of needs? Uh, does he mean the same thing that you mean by self-esteem or does he mean something else? It's a great question. And I have to apologize here. It's almost a little embarrassing having written on his hierarchy, you know, very critically. I'm a little rusty on the actual scholarship involved. You know, really, I'm commenting on the current cultural manifestation. It's kind of been hijacked by modern commentators and just people on you know, Facebook and Twitter to mean this set of things. Maslow himself was, I think, a more sophisticated thinker than, than this reading suggests. I think he had, from what I can recall when I was studying you know, his humanistic theory in more detail, he had a more nuanced version of his view than you've got to eat before you can you know, be sheltered and then you can seek shelter. And then once you've got shelter, you can care about finding a girlfriend and then you can care about yourself. You know, I, I, I know it was more sophisticated than that, though I think some of the same errors we would still likely find um, to apply. And my understanding, again, which is a little bit dated and a little bit rusty, so take it with a grain of salt. But in a very general way, I can tell you that his humanistic tradition views the human being as, as naturally carrying a great deal of positive potential. You know, that's why the term positive psychology also evolved out of mm. this humanistic perspective, this idea that we start out with positive strivings. It's not that it's innate in us per se. It's not like we're absolutely destined to become, you know, an astronaut or a great entrepreneur, you know, or whatever it may be, but that we have that potential in us and that assuming best case scenario, assuming a nurturing environment and loving parents, you know, if everything goes well, that that's where we'll tend to kind of develop toward, that we'll tend to develop in a way that really fulfills us both, you know, body and soul, that, that we're going to seek toward kind of increasingly lofty, ambitious ideals. And, and I think ultimately it does get a little fuzzy for him and the other humanists, like, well, what counts as a lofty or higher ideal, but often it'll be kind of vague gestures toward, you know, we'll want to help other people, but also, you know, we'll want to be creative and to come up with new ways of doing things. And we'll want to, you know, to stand for something, you know, we'll want to have principles and think more long range and be broader minded and have, you know, more vision versus just, you know, making it to tomorrow and kind of trudging along and just being practical. So, so he's referring to, self-actualization is a fulfillment of spiritual needs and strivings that make us feel whole and and that kind of represent the actualization of that human potential that everybody starts with in his view um so uh, roughly at least i think that that's a fair representation so when he, when he calls it self-actualization it's from the perspective of saying 
there are potentials that yourself has and it's good to yeah. actualize those potentials. But it, it seems like at the same time, and, and there may be something uh, quite uh, useful about that kind of concept, but it's different mm-hmm. from a concept like self-esteem where self-esteem is not just a, a development of something. It's a, it's a reflection back on yourself and an estimate of it and a judgment of it. And um, you need it from the beginning. Right. So I think that's a really big difference. For Maslow, what I do think is fair to say of his perspective is some people never get to self-actualization. I don't know what, I'd have to go back and look like what he thought the percentage was, but I don't think that he thought it was large. You know, I don't think that he would have credited most of humanity with being self-actualized. Now, I would probably agree with him on that, but what that means to me, you know, something very different. He would say, and that's okay because, you know, you get to where, as far as you can, and you can be happy enough just having belongingness, you know, and having some amount of esteem, but not having gotten to like full self-fulfillment because he sees those as two distinct steps or just having gotten, you know, you're, you're comfortable, safe, and you've got good friendships, but you haven't really gotten to reflecting on who you are and who you want to be. You know, it's fine. It's just, it could be even better. But in my view and in Rand's view, and I think in reality, the question of, am I okay? And, you know, am I worth it is built in from the start. As soon as we have any kind of self-reflective consciousness. So, you know, we can debate whether that's like age three, age four, age five, you know, but from very early on, we have a need because we have a view of ourselves and we have a need to at least have some amount of trust in our judgment at whatever level we're exercising our judgment. And, we have to not hate ourselves, right? We have to have a, at least somewhat positive estimate that like I'm worth the trouble of putting in effort and of figuring out my values and you know what I wanna be and what I, what I wanna do in my life. Now, earlier you had said that while there's a point to saying that a quest for self-esteem or respect is a proof of its lack, uh, there's another sense in which it can be a completely legitimate thing uh, right. to seek self-esteem and connected to that, I think Mason asks an interesting question. Well, don't you at least need a little bit of it to begin with uh, to yeah. seek further self-esteem? Do you think he's right about that? Yeah, so that's the catch-22 that I was referring to. And yes, I think that is true in a sense. I also think in a sense, everybody who's alive today and isn't like hospitalized for psychosis has at least a bit of self-esteem or at least the makings of what could you know, become a more stable and more flourishing self-esteem insofar as like they're getting up, they're making themselves, you know, breakfast or they're finding people to do it for them. And the fact that they're even bothering to do anything at all to stay alive, you know, even if right now it's that they're primarily drawing on the kind of pseudo self-esteem of other people's validation, you know, of like pretending away the things that aren't going well, the fact that they are capable of, and sometimes at least going through the motions of thinking and acting in ways to like maintain their own life means that there's something to build upon, right? It means that they can continue to do that, but now turn attention to it in a different way that actually allows for it to give them a sense of efficacy and that allows for them to take pride in what they're doing instead of just interpreting it as, lame or just as following orders or whatever the case may be. And they can choose to turn on their minds in a way they haven't in a long time. And it's going to be painful and hard. But even in the moment of doing that, they can choose to take pride in doing that, given how hard it is. And that's one thing I've really 
focused on and done a lot of writing and thinking about is that locus by which I think we can get out of that catch-22 because we always have a choice to think, to, to be honest with ourselves, to look at reality, even if it's just, shit, my life is really bad right now. Just in the act of doing that, we're proving, in effect, in the very act, we're proving that we're capable of doing something hard, right? And that there's a world out here worthy of our effort, worthy of our attention to be able to say, this is how it is. And that that's something we value. I think we should start to wrap up, but I, I did want to ask you one more question of my own, and I don't know how much you want to get into politics, but uh, <laughs> do you think that the fact that self-esteem is disparaged in certain ways, and the fact that these spiritual needs more generally are regarded as simply a luxury, is, is that a cultural attitude that is... Uh, detrimental to our culture and to our future as a, as a nation. And I know you've written some other things about uh, the sense of life of the nation at present and accepting mm -hmm. uh, the yeah. current political situation. But did you want to did you want to say anything about that? I, I, I'll say a little. I don't want to venture too far into politics because it is not my area. And I don't trust myself, you know, in that arena. I know better than you know. But I'll say at the level of broad cultural observation that I think if there's a way in which our culture disparages self-esteem, I think it's, it's in disparaging the productive value of self-esteem, the survival value, mm -hmm. if you will, right? It's by splitting us into two and viewing on the one hand, you know, our like means of production, even, you know, and I don't think we're Marxist about it, but I think there's a, a kind of different way in which, you know, there's this mind-body dichotomy about on the one hand, we, you know, yes, we have these mental health needs and we have these like subjective feelings that need to, you know, that, that we need to try to optimize and protect. And then on the other side, you know, we have this body that needs to not die, right? And I mean, I think we're seeing that in the flesh, if you will, that fundamental cultural split, I think, in the current crisis, because there's this kind of mentality of non-death equals life, right? Non-death is the ultimate standard rather than like living as a human being with all that that means, including being able to flourish and to pursue one's productive activities and to, you know, engage in like exchange with other people on the market and like go out and listen to concerts and like the things that make life worth living for a human being, I think are being tremendously devalued. And and that we need, you know, those spiritual needs, the fact that they're connected to what we physically do to survive, you know, the idea that, oh, it's the economy, like, who cares about the economy when there's lives at stake? Like, the, the idea that our productive capacity is somehow separate from our life capacity, you know, and what makes life, what, what makes us capable and worthy of living, right, I think reflects that really fundamental split that is really hurting us right now. I could not have said that better myself. You probably could have. <laughs> I don't I'm think you could have. So let me um, start to really wrap up, Gina, by giving uh, our audience some resources for learning more about some of the things that we've talked about today. So to begin with, uh, we've talked a lot about the concept of self-esteem. This, this is a view, this is a concept that Ayn Rand herself had a lot to say about. Good place to start to learn more about this is uh, in the Ayn Rand lexicon, which is online. Uh, just go to courses.aynrand.org. Uh, 
Uh, look up self-esteem. You'll see a number of passages from her books. These might give you some leads uh, to learn more about how it comes up in her philosophy. I'll also uh, briefly recommend a few resources uh, from Dr. Gorlin. So uh, Gina has given a number of talks on psychological issues uh, for objectivist conferences. Uh, we have several of them on our YouTube channel. Uh, here's one that I watched recently that I, I liked quite a lot, and it touches on a lot of uh, the issues we've discussed today, earning your own trust, the psychology of honesty. You can just go to the Ayn Rand Institute YouTube channel to see this and others, or if you want to look at this one quickly, I made a little uh, quick link, uh, bit.ly slash Gorlin hyphen trust. And last but not least, I'll just mention again the article uh, that Gina wrote that we've been drawing on today. This is called COVID-19 and the Meaning of Life. Uh, it's available on ginagorlin.com. She's also posted to it to medium.com. And I've created a little short link, bit.ly slash gorlin meaning, if you want to type that in and read more about it. Um, so uh, otherwise, Gina, I think this was a really interesting conversation. Thanks again so much for coming on. Uh, I hope I you've given it. our audience more to think about. And I hope you've even maybe given them some tools uh, to get through this uh, very extraordinary set of times that we're now going through. So thank you, Gina. And uh, I hope thank to see you. you again on New Ideal Live sometime soon. Likewise, thank you for having me. And uh, you can go ahead and turn off your camera. I'm gonna now just remind uh, our audience that if you, uh, if you like what we offer on New Ideal, please remember to go to the ARI YouTube channel, click the red button to subscribe and you can also be sure to click on the little bell icon that will give you notifications and reminders the next time we go live and whenever new videos appear on the channel. Uh, otherwise, New Ideal broadcasts Mondays and Wednesdays, 11 a.m. Uh, Pacific time, 2 p.m. Eastern time. We will be back next week with more. I think we are taking a break Monday for Memorial Day. It's hard to believe that holidays exist anymore, but I think they do and they ought to. Uh, so uh, we will see you again Wednesday uh, with a topic still to be determined, though I suspect that it's going to have something to do with legal issues. Uh, see you again uh, next week, or if not me, then later. Bye-bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.